Well, good morning again. Uh, for those of you who came in a little late, I just wanted to reiterate one announcement. Uh, you may have heard Barry mention something about this, uh, but we are moving at the start of September uh, over to Friendship Baptist. Uh, we'll have more information coming out about that. We'll have a meeting after the service on the 29th to talk in more detail about it. Uh, but it will me- mean moving to a 9 a.m. service. Uh, so that's one of the key takeaways you need uh, this morning. <laughs> 9 a.m. Um, you know, we're supposed to praise the Lord in the morning. You know, the Psalms talk about that. So there we go. Uh, with that, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5. We are finishing up this letter that Paul wrote to one of the churches that he helped start. He wrote it, you may recall, if you've been following this series, about a year after he helped start that church, uh, but was run out of town uh, by a riot. We're going to be turning back in the fall to, our, to Genesis, where we were at last fall, uh, to think about the life of Abraham. And it's interesting to think along the way about all the ways in which what the Bible teaches us inform the way we read those stories. Um, And this is one of the reasons we go to God's Word, isn't it? So we can understand through the messiness of our lives what God would have for us. It's not merely that it's the truth, though it is that for sure, but that because God is good, He's teaching us uh, how we should live. So let's keep that in mind as we pick up in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you open your word for us? Would you send your spirit to illuminate it? Not just that we would understand it, but to also shed light on our hearts and the ways in which we need to learn from it. Do this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this. Probably you have. Gotten to the end of a, a conversation. Maybe it was, maybe you're meeting somebody for lunch or coffee. And then as, as they're getting up to go, they say, uh, one more thing. There was just one other thing I had to mention. And of course, it's the most important thing you could have possibly talked about. I think we've all probably done that. 
when I was in campus ministry, uh, notoriously, it would be the very last meeting of the semester. Very last meeting I'm having with a student. I th- we're, supp- <laughs> we're trying to wrap up. Uh, one, one, one thing, and then they bring up this mess that they've made all semester, you know, of their lives, and then we're supposed to put the pieces back together in, you know, 20 minutes. Um, I can't blame them, right? They knew they would get to avoid looking me in the face for a few months, (laughs) but uh, such is life, right? We all kind of say that. It kind of feels like Paul's doing something like that, I think, when we read the end of a lot of these letters. As if Paul's like, oh yeah, and by the way, boom, 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 it's all these commandments, right? Coming at you, and it's like, whoa, whoa, we need to unpack some of this. Uh, (laughs) The truth is, Paul might have actually been running out of space on the original parchment. Parchment wasn't exactly easy to come by in the the ancient world, so maybe he would have said more if he had more space. I don't really know, but the point of all this is that Paul's been talking throughout this letter about what it means to be changed. He's talking to a church that has experienced, I mean, every single one of them, a radical change over the last year in their lives, and he has been writing to encourage them in that, to help point out various ways in which that change works, how it functions, different aspects of their lives that need to be touched by it. And here he's touching kind of on these last few things that point out how multifaceted the change that they experience really is, whether they've realized it or not. And he points out ways in which they are called to be changed, the the ways in which they are being changed that affect how they interact with each other, uh, what they're called to personally. And then he points out how God is the one doing the change. All right, so what they're called, the change that they're called to in terms of their relationships, the change that they're called to personally, and God being the one at work to change them. So notice, if initially there's these kind of interpersonal categories. This is, this is really the first uh, few verses, so 12 to 15. Paul ended actually the previous section, you might remember, uh, from last week by saying, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. And we talked about how Paul keeps coming back to this idea of encouraging one another. And that seems to be the pivot into these last closing comments encourage one another. So then he talks about one specific way in which they ought to do that in verses 12 and 13, to respect and esteem their leaders, which makes it awkward to preach on when that happens to apply to you. But uh, notice this, right? I mean, he's saying because of their work, right? Because the, the work of, you know, presumably he's talking about the elders and the deacons here, at least, if not others, uh, He's talking about that because they do this work for the church that calls on them, heart and soul, to be engaged with others. It's, not, it's because of the task, right? It's not because you happen to like them or not like them that much. Uh, and it's not that Paul disregards character. We'll talk about that more in a second, but... This is key, right? That we are called on to respect those who work. I mean, even 
those of us who are elders and deacons answer to others as well. That even we're not above that uh, to answer to others. And I think it's no mistake then that peace comes at the end of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Because I will tell you when the biggest problems happen in a church and you can see it over and over and over again, it's not merely when just two people in the church happen to disagree about a particular point. It is when that disagreement comes in conflict with the leadership of the church. When either people really have a problem with what the leaders are doing, right or wrong, or when the divide enters into the leadership of the church itself. Right? That's when real church breakups happen. That's where they fall apart. I don't think that's, that means, and this is important then, that there's a, there's an, a key aspect of following and leading that is part of our calling as Christians. Uh, following is not a passive thing, but an active thing. What Paul is saying here is not just do as you're told, but to listen and respond. That's it's important, right? That means what it means to be somebody who's a member of the church isn't just to simply, well, obviously I'll sit there as a bump on the log every Sunday morning, uh, but, you know, to be engaged with what's actually being talked about, what we're being called on to do. And it's not a mistake then that Paul in Ephesians 4 will say, look, those who are called and given gifts to be different leaders are called to do this in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, the work of, you know, sometimes we talk about like pastors as people who are in ministry. Well, the ministry is the work of the church. I mean, there's obviously a specific task in, in equipping, but the ministry is the work of the church. So even following is still an active calling. And, and of course, Paul, and look, you can read Paul's other letters. Paul is not unaware of how imperfect the church is. I don't know if you've read 1 Corinthians in a while or if you've read Galatians in a while. These churches are unbelievably messy. Huge mess. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm not even going to get into the whole Corinthian thing, but that, that is a huge mess. Paul's not blind to this fact, right, that the church is imperfect, that the church is pretty messy. And I will say this, he is not unequivocal. He's not saying no matter what, follow the leadership. But he is saying that following is not optional. You understand this? Again, that applies to me as well. I mean, I'm answerable to others. That's why we have a Presbyterian system. I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but I'm answerable to others just as much as anyone else. And that is what we're called to do is submit to that. It's not optional. And there's plenty of people who skip around churches and it's, everything's fine until there's something they don't like. Or maybe a, something they disagree with. Now, again, Paul's not unequivocal. There are times where Paul, I think, would tell you it's the right time to leave a church. But is that merely because the, we changed the carpet? 
We don't even have carpet here. And it wouldn't be us, up to us to change, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like these minor issues where there's certainly leeway to have a difference of opinion or a different viewpoint or a different preference are certainly not the places that we need to be leaving and fighting over. But sometimes those differences seem so big, right? And that's the moment to recognize that you're the one being called on to deal with your own heart. Now, there is that flip side of leadership, and I'm not going to leave that unmentioned. (laughs) Paul and the whole of the New Testament actually do talk quite a bit about what it means to lead. You can go back to Acts 20 and Paul talking to elders at the church in Ephesus. You can go to 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 where it talks about those who are called to be elders and deacons and what they're supposed to be like. You can read really all of 2 Timothy is about Paul telling Timothy what he should be as a minister. Uh, It's daunting. So there's a ton that's there about it. And Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 5. We We could go on and on. You get the point. It comes up over and over again. And really what is emphasized over and over and over again whenever Scripture talks about leadership is character. Above everything else. Character and accountability to one another. And those really are the places I think Paul would tell you are the deal breakers. There's a, there's a fascinating, kind of heartbreaking podcast. It's like a short run podcast that Christianity Today is running called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which was a church in Seattle. It grew up in the late 90s through the early uh, 2010s, and there was a bunch of scandals and really problems from the top down. And one of the things that they keep coming back to is that because they had a lot of success, at least numerically, and probably some real people's lives changed, even in the midst of it. And because people seem to have certain gifts, right, they kept getting a pass on the issues of character until it was too late. You have a right, (laughs) in other words, if I can put it in the most American terms, to call on those who are in leadership to be accountable for their character. But don't miss the point here, that that accountability is also about those who are leading, following the Lord, listening to his word. And that's why following is so important whether it's me, whether it's the elders, whether it's anyone else in this church, right, is following God's word. And that's what makes for faithful leadership. And that ought to be the kind of leadership we can respect. Even if we disagree on a few choices along the way. Well, Again, as they're thinking about, as Paul's thinking about his concern for others here, he talks about the leadership dynamics, and then he gets into uh, the questions about, in verse 14, people who are difficult to deal with, and in verse 15, people who are sinful. And notice this in verse 14, he, 
he gives us kind of, he gives us three categories of people. The difficult people, those who are idle, those who are faint-hearted, and those who are weak. I'm saying they're difficult, and I mean that from the standpoint of if you're somebody dealing with them. I'm not saying they're intentionally being difficult, but there's, this is a kind of a scale, right? And you notice Paul's verbs that go along with it. They're stronger at first, and they get gentler and gentler, right? So if you're, the idea of somebody being idle is somebody who knows what they're supposed to do and just kind of doesn't do it. They know what they're called to, but they're just not engaging. So Paul says to admonish them. At the other end is the category of those who are weak. And elsewhere where Paul calls people, somebody or another or some group of people in the church weak, he means that they don't have a firm enough grip on the truth of the gospel yet. That they don't really totally understand what the implications are. So those are people that need to be helped. Be helped along, shown what they're supposed to do, taught. Right? These are, these are the, this is what weak means. And in the middle is the category of the faint-hearted who need to be encouraged. And these are folks who largely know what they're called to, but for whatever reason, the circumstances of their lives, they're discouraged. They need to be encouraged, right? Come alongside of. So all of them, and this is important, all of them need to be dealt with with patience. Did you catch that part? Whenever you're dealing with somebody who's difficult in the church, we're called to patience. Meaning we've got to slow down. You may not actually understand which type of person you're dealing with. You have to actually think through what's going on in their lives, engage their lives enough to understand. And verse 15 gets into those who are sinful, though. And Paul says something here that he says in a, a number of other places, do not return evil for evil, but always seek the good. And I think we know that, and that seems obvious enough as a principle. If I were to ask any of you, do you think you should just respond evil for evil for somebody? Of course you would say, no, no, that doesn't, no, I, I shouldn't do that. Uh, and maybe we flatter ourselves sometimes that we don't do that. But we usually do. And Paul's, of course, echoing what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. So you can actually express the heart of God in love for those who are your enemies. Now, Paul's not saying that we don't have to confront, that there is an appropriate time for that. He's not saying that you need to perpetually go on being a victim. But he is saying respond with what is good. And sometimes accountability and that sort of thing is the right kind, the good response to somebody. They may not like it very much, but respond good for evil. But, I mean, how many times do you hear the narrative, well, she said this to me, so I said, or he did this to me, and so I did X. Now, 
That's what your kids tell you when they're fighting. But adults, though they dress it up a little more, say the exact same thing. It's still the same narrative, right? This person did this to me, so I did this. And that's, of course, returning evil for evil. But the Bible teaches us to distinguish then, or to be patient enough to distinguish the difficult people from the evil people, so we're not lopping off the heads of those who are just not easy to deal with. But even when we deal with evil, to answer it with good. And that is hard because that always is sacrificial. And again, that doesn't mean you need to necessarily stay in the place where you're a victim over and over and over again. But there is something sacrificial in answering evil with good. And at the very least, it is the delicious taste of revenge that we're giving up. And we are giving up the claim on what we had, whether that was your reputation or some piece of your reputation. Whether that was something you lost that's actually material. But the gospel teaches us to leave those things behind. Because what do you have to lose if you're in Jesus? Really? What do you have to lose? And the gospel teaches us to see ourselves as sinners first and foremost, on our own, before God. Who are we to think of ourselves as better than others? Uh, Even when we're redeemed and we're in Jesus and we've been forgiven, we are still a work in progress, just like anybody else. And Jesus promises that everything that matters will be regained. I think we read those sorts of promises throughout the Bible as in very material terms, as if, you know, well, if you give a lot of money, you give up that sort of thing, you're going to gain that back. But no, Jesus in the rest of the Bible is talking about something more important, right? It is talking about our hearts. And by sacrificing what we give, we return, is given back in return. And I don't know how to explain that other than to say it is really only through sacrifice that our hearts actually grow and are enlarged. And the reason is because that is the very heart of God. Because that is what he is like. And we know it because that is what Jesus has done for us. So Paul's concerned to show them again from this new angle that they're being changed in terms of how they relate to one another. But then he gives a bunch of commands that are simply towards us. I mean, they are plural, I guess, but you know, these are not about how you interact with others. It is rejoice, pray, give thanks, do not quench Do not despise, test. These are all things that are certainly supposed to be done regardless of our 
situation, regardless of those who we're interacting with. But what's fascinating about that then is to notice that all of it focuses on worship and the Word. So again, verses 16 through 18 tell us to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. That is a description of worship. That's what we're called into is worship. Which is, and notice at the end of verse 18, this is God's will for you. He said something similar about sanctification back in chapter 4, that that's God's will for you. And now he's saying is that you would worship him. And those two things are deeply interconnected, aren't they? Being changed and enjoying being in God's presence. They're connected. And I think this is why then he says, don't quench the spirit. In other words, don't. The idea is of a fire, right? Putting out a fire. Don't quench the spirit in verse 19. Instead, here he moves on to the word in verse 20 through 22. Listen, don't despise prophecy. So listen to the word and test it. Now, we're messed up a little bit because most of us, even if you know the Bible pretty well, probably mishear the word prophecy. Most people, when they hear the idea of prophecy, they think of somebody going to an oracle to get the future predicted for them. But biblical prophecy has very, very little of that kind of thing. It really does not happen all that much in the Bible. Instead, what you hear the prophets doing is going back to Scripture that has already been given and riffing on it. You want to do a little exercise in this? Uh, you should read Deuteronomy and then read the prophets. In particular, I can narrow it down. I know that's a lot of reading. Go back and read Deuteronomy 28 and 30. Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell speech. And in Deuteronomy 28, he's pretty much getting to the end of the main speech. And what he does is he holds out blessings if they follow God's law and how everything is going to be beautiful and perfect in the land. I mean, it's going to basically be a new Garden of Eden. (laughs) And then he says, but if you don't, here are all the curses that will come on you, and it is a living nightmare. Those are the blessings and the curses. And then there's, there's another ceremony in chapter 29 to renew the covenant. And then, man, in Moses' parting shot in Deuteronomy 30, he says, so when you fail and all these curses come on you, return to the Lord and he will change your heart. And I'll tell you, if you read 28 and 30, if you read those two chapters and then flip to of the Old Testament prophets. You know what you'll hear? You'll hear them riffing on that old standard. They've been reading those (laughs) books, and what they're doing is riffing on the curses, or sometimes the blessing when they're talking about what it means for the Lord to come back. And they will talk, they will tell you over and over and over again. You can go through and circle it in all the prophets, return to the Lord. They are riffing on Scripture. Now, I mean, there is, something, there is something about the prophets and the apostles, of course, that have a direct line to God that you and I don't have. But 
for most of church history, they've thought about prophecy, at least up until the 20th century, as being based in Scripture, expounding Scripture. I mean, yes, there are, have been some nutcases along the way who have thought they could speak for God. I'm not saying that that hasn't happened. But by and large, they have thought about this as somebody expounding and listening to God's Word. What, what Paul is telling us, in other words, is listen to God's Word and test it. How do you test it? By the Word. If, you, if we go back to, if you go back to Acts 17, we covered this at the very beginning of the series, in the, when Paul started the church in Thessalonica, the very next place he goes is a church in Berea. And that church is commended for testing everything by the Scriptures. In other words, that's what we're supposed to do is go back to the Scriptures. And so he tells us to hold what is on to what is good and abstain from what is evil. Uh, I think in context, when he says abstain from every form of evil, well, that's obviously a good principle in general. I think he has in mind here specifically what is taught. Hold on to what is good and abstain from what is evil. So all of this is to say that worship and the word are central to our lives. And I think that we tend to think that worship is the icing on the cake, that what we're supposed to do is be changed, we're supposed to improve morally, and then we can come into worship and enjoy it. And that way of thinking about worship means that worship is expressive of who we already are. But the way the Bible is telling us that worship works is at least in part the other way around that it is formative rather than more than expressive. That coming into worship and singing and praying together, listening to the word, partaking in the supper is about being formed into who we are, not merely giving expression to what we've already become. That is why worship is central to it and why it's always, always a bad sign when someone is cutting themselves off from worship. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, we're cutting off our lifeline. Because worship forms us. And whether that, and it, you know, there's a private, there's private worship, right? Devotionals, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and there's public worship, and both are essential, right? Essential to be in prayer and in God's word individually. It's essential to be here together. I mean, it's been a hard year for a lot of this, or a year and a half at this point, really. You know, I mean, I know a lot of people who have talked about how difficult it's been to, to be in the Word, that at first, when everything shut down, it seemed like, oh, okay, like, our lives have slowed down, I can be reading my Bible a little bit easier, you know, every, you know the morning's a little slower, this kind of thing, and then as, uh, as it's ground along... <laughs> It seems like people keep telling me it's been really hard to be consistent at that. And look, being here in worship has been hard. We haven't had childcare in a year and a half. We have different rules, which are not always easy, and some of us find them very frustrating to deal with, and I get it. <laughs> and I, you know, and I, I get the fear as well, and I'm not saying that we ought to forget all those things right now. 
But we ought to be asking the question, is worship the priority of our lives? Because I can guarantee you this, Paul's been talking about the end of time in the previous couple of passages we've read. And if you want to know one thing that will be a constant now and into eternity is that we will be worshiping the Lord. There's one thing I can promise you that is going to be a constant in terms of your life and what you do is worship the Lord. Now, in the future, it will be done without sin and a whole host of our limitations, and it will be with every, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Obviously, it will be much more beautiful then, but this is the time to get ready. This is why worship is so formative. It's about getting us ready for what we are called to, both now and into eternity. And worship is, of course, rooted in the Word, right? It comes back to God's Word. And I don't know, again, I've heard from a lot of people that that's been hard. But for many of us, there's a temptation to sort of move away from that because the word is hard. I don't mean that it is bad. I hope that's clear. I don't mean that it can't be understood but it isn't always easy. There are some difficult sections of it. Some of you might be saying there's a lot of difficult sections. I don't know. A lot of us prefer to move towards a more kind of spiritual but not religious style. We all swim in those waters, even if we know that that isn't the, the right way <laughs> to do things. We all kind of live in those waters. And we imagine, again, a kind of relationship with God that is not tethered to his word. But that is a hopeless endeavor. Not because we're not supposed to have a relationship with God, but because the word is the thing that he's given to us to make it clear how we do that. And I'm not saying you can't have questions. I love questions. Bring them up. Let's talk. I'm not saying that there aren't difficult passages to understand or passages that haven't been misapplied in church history. I mean, those are myriad. I'm not even saying it's easy to just agree with everything that you know it's teaching. I think everybody has that experience of feeling like, hmm, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. But God gave his word so that we can understand who he is. And that is the inroad. That is, the silent, that is the breaking of the silence between us and what is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. It is his word. And it's on the heels of that that Paul closes the letter by reminding them that it is God who works. And notice this, there's kind of a, there's really two blessings here, verses 23, 24, and then verse 28. In between, he tells them a, a last couple of directions, right? Pray for him as an apostle. This is verses 25 and 27, through 27. Pray for him as an apostle. Greet each other. Uh, you know, the kiss thing is obviously a cultural, uh, it's culturally specific 
idea, but they're supposed to greet each other lovingly, and they're supposed to make sure this is read to everybody. So there's kind of the last few directions, but on either side of that is a blessing, right? And verses 23 and 24 are recalling themes that Paul's already talked about. He's talked about peace. He's talked about being sanctified. He has talked about the coming of our Lord Jesus. He's drawing on all those different themes, bringing them together, right? And blessing them in those things. And reminding them that it is God who is faithful to bring it all about. That however difficult it seems, God will see it through. And then the last word in 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Because that is the last word. It is the first and the last word of the good news of Jesus, is God's grace. God has been faithful to, to the Thessalonian church. He sent Paul a dream to make sure Paul went <laughs> to Greece in Acts 16. Paul goes through there. These people are called, and even amidst tribulation, God has seen them through. Paul's encouraging them. And look, that is the story of every single church, is that God is faithful. It's your story if you are in Jesus. It's that God is faithful. How do you know he's faithful? Because he has sent his son to die in your place because he has raised his son so that the power of sin and death would be broken. And his son is returning as the guarantee of a future with him. So listen, maybe, maybe you're not sure you believe all that. Then the question is not whether you agree with all these directions Paul is giving. If you start there, you're starting in the wrong place. Because the point is whether Jesus has died and risen from the dead. All the rest of this is built on that. Because that is the guarantee of what God is doing. And that's the question you've got to face, is whether Jesus has died and risen from the dead and what on earth that might mean. But if you are in Christ, look, if you're encouraged this morning and you hear all this stuff and you're like, you've got energy for it, and you're excited about all about doing good to those who do evil, if you're excited about being patient with everybody, amen, be thankful, pray for deeper confidence in Christ, and look for those you can help. And if you're discouraged, which I imagine might be a lot of you, if you're discouraged, then be reminded that it is Jesus who has died and risen from the dead for you. It is Jesus who is returning. God is faithful. He will not fail. He is at work in your life. He's at work in this church. God will not fail. His designs will work out. We might think they should go a certain way. And God may or may not agree with that. But God will not fail to be faithful. God will not fail. Because God's grace never fails us. Again, grace is the last and the first word in the Christian life.
everything hinges on God's grace. The word grace in Greek, charis, means a gift. Grace is what is undeserved. It is what we are given in Jesus. Jesus himself is a gift from God to you. The Holy Spirit that Jesus has then given is a gift for you. Everything that we have in Christ is a gift. Everything that you have from him is a gift. Even when we're called to action, even when God calls us to do things that are sometimes difficult, even when we're discouraged and aren't sure how to continue to move forward, God is the one at work and it is a gift. Everything is a gift. That is why faith, hope, and love feature so prominently in this book. As they do in everything Paul writes, they seem to crop up again and again because that is what it means to live with a gift. Faith is to receive it. Hope is to recognize what it is. That is God's gift and not a thing of my own. And love is about responding with the freedom that that gift gives you. What we have as a church, really at the end of the day, the only thing that matters that we have as the church is God's gift, his grace. Let's pray. Father, would you remind us that everything we have is from you and is given to us by grace in Christ. We forget over and over again We need to be reminded over and over again that you are a giver of what we do not deserve, but of what Jesus has given to us. As we come to this meal, Lord, remind us of his death and his resurrection on our behalf and of the feast that lies ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.